As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 61, The Purge of the Girondins, Part 3. In the last episode, we witnessed the insurrection of 31 May. Attempting to rid the Republic of the despised Girondins, the insurrectionary forces of Paris had failed. In this episode, insurrection will remain the order of the day, and the convention will be forced to submit. The episode extra for this episode examines the famous speech of Londrinet, a speech which includes so many quirks, ironies and death threats that I couldn't possibly give it the time it deserves in the main show. That bonus content, and others like it, is available exclusively for members of the Grey History community. Speaking of which, a humongous thank you to the amazing people keeping Grey History on the air. Grey History is only possible thanks to the support of the most generous people on the planet, and I can't stress enough how grateful I am for your sponsorship of Grey History. If you'd like to enjoy more Grey History in the future, as well as more Grey History right now, support the show today for as little as half a cup of coffee when main narrative episodes are released. Help produce history that isn't black and white, and help ensure that there's more Grey History waiting for you tomorrow. For those members contributing a full cup of coffee per episode, you'll already have early access to episode 62, The Federalist Revolts, alongside the new questions and answers bonus episode for members of the show. Speaking of members, it's with tremendous pleasure that I get to introduce the newest members of the Grey History community. A warm welcome to the newest virtuous citizens, Jerome, Eric, Tancred, Quinn, Michael, Darakshan, Maggie, Jody, Christopher W, Susan, Matt, Chris C, and William. Great name you've got there, William. Another warm welcome to the newest true revolutionaries, John, Mick, Valerie, and Jesse. I hope you all enjoyed your early access to this episode a full two weeks ahead of the public feed. All revolutions need their champions, and I'm thrilled to introduce the newest champions of the people, David, Howard, Alistair and Kevin, who join the amazing Cindy, George, Tim, Mark, William, Laura, Daniel, Monica, Joel, Susan, Adam, Tom, Eyal and Harold. Finally, a thank you to the Pantheon of the Greats, who have been joined by Scott, who recently increased his pledge. Thank you so much to the extraordinarily generous Heroes of the Revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, Auger, Kevin, Noel, and now Scott. Thank you all for joining the community and doing your part to keep grey history on the air. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 61, The Purge of the Girondins. 
part three. By the time the dust settled on the 31st of May, the insurrectionary movement had incurred a monumental setback. Yes, the Commission of Twelve had been abolished, but so what? The true prize of the insurrection was the Girondin deputies. Whether it be their expulsion, their arrest, their trial, or their Septemberization, the various authors of the unrest wanted the Girondins' removal from power. The goal of the insurgents had always been to purge the so-called 22, those deputies who had committed an endless list of crimes against the French people. In this, they had failed. Allowed to remain at their posts, the Girondins had survived yet another assault, and the radical cohorts of Paris were yet again defeated. In fact, the word defeat perhaps doesn't set the right tone. Historians from across the ideological spectrum don't sugarcoat the loss. Historian Peter Kruputkin, for example, always one to shine a favourable light on the people's actions, described the day as a failure. So too does historian Timothy Tackett, who also characterises it as a fiasco. And to be clear, fiasco is hardly an exaggeration. The insurrectionists had sought to rid France of the corrupting and treasonous influence of the Girondins. Instead, the Girondins remained in the convention and in the ministry. Furthermore, the Girondins could now strike back. The deputy Isnard had warned that Paris would face obliteration at the hands of fellow Frenchmen should an attack occur against the national representation. So too had the departments themselves, with cities like Bordeaux proclaiming their intention to march on the capital if their representatives were mistreated. Well, with the people of Paris undeniably assaulting the deputies of the nation, and the Girondins having survived that assault, what now would come to pass? Would civil war consume France, just like it had in the Vendée? It was thus in an atmosphere of setback and uncertainty that the insurrectionaries regrouped, or at least attempted to. With the bitter taste of defeat occupying their palates, some were keen to take out their frustrations on one another. Although appearing as a united revolutionary front, substantial divisions were always present within the insurrectionary movement. Not all sections had even participated in the Avishi Assembly, and that body, along with the Paris Commune and the Paris Department, were all staffed by a wide coalition of revolutionary forces. Forces which disagreed on not only the means of this insurrection, but also the ends. With the insurrection of 31 May culminating in a fiasco, factional tensions promptly erupted. Some ultra-radicals accused the Jacobins of wanting to pull back from the insurrection, endangering the revolution and even failing to truly represent the demands of the sovereign nation. Incredibly, the prominent enraged leader Valet 
denounced the section president Dobson, despite the fact that both men had been arrested by the Commission of Twelve just a week earlier, and both were sitting on the Avicii Assembly's new Central Revolutionary Committee. In return, reluctant insurrectionists, who had warned against commencing the uprising, had their opportunity to say, I told you so. They could blame the excesses and impatience of the enraged for failing to secure their one overarching goal. In the mix, prominent Jacobins were also ready to gripe, with the Jacobin mayor Pash condemning the leadership of Valais and the radical influence of the enraged more broadly. In short, in the wake of the failed insurgency, the forces of insurrection were in disarray, and the insurrection's eventual success was far from a foregone conclusion. But with the revolutionary leadership bogged down in factional squabbles, two key demands emerged from the broader insurrectionary movement. The first was continuity, and the second was change. In terms of the former, the message from the radical grassroots was simple. The insurrection must continue. Be it in the sectional assemblies or in the political societies, the revolutionary cohorts of Paris demanded a renewed effort. With the Girondins betraying the nation in a myriad of self-interested conspiracies, their presence in the convention was an existential danger to the revolution. Such a threat could not be ignored. As the Jacobin deputy B.U. Varenne told the Jacobin Club, I believe in the view of the audacity of the conspirators, that the nation has not been saved. I do not understand how the patriots were able to leave their posts without decreeing an act of accusation against the ministers. The insurrection was directed against the counter-revolutionaries on the right, and it follows that it should not end until they are all destroyed. It should not end until they are all destroyed. So long as the Girondins remained at their posts, the insurgents must do so as well. Yet, if the first key message bubbling up from the grassroots was continuity, the second was change. Outraged and dismayed at the failures of the 31st of May, the sections supportive of insurrection made it clear that the existing revolutionary leadership had to deliver results. If they failed, the Central Revolutionary Committee, the Paris Commune, and any other so-called leaders of the people would be replaced. Frustrated by the lack of progress, one section proposed a decree stating... The Central Revolutionary Committee and the Great Council of the Commune are unworthy of the confidence of the section. If, within 24 hours, the country is not saved, the sections will be invited to elect new commissioners worthy of their confidence, who will meet in the Avishi and who, invested with unlimited powers, shall be charged with taking sweeping measures which alone can save public affairs. 
In short, not only should the insurrection continue, but it should continue by whatever means necessary. If that meant more radical solutions, then so be it. If that meant more radical leadership, that too was not just acceptable, but in fact desirable. We heard in the last episode historian Albert Mati claim that the insurrection of 31 May was made by the enraged and that the mountain was compelled to follow, both to triumph and to survive. This is not the first time we've seen the Jacobins compelled to follow the enraged. And here again, in the wake of the failed insurrection, we see this dynamic reoccurring. Remember, although members of the enraged had helped to trigger the insurrection, the Central Revolutionary Committee had fast been co-opted by more mainstream Jacobins. Thus, it was these comparatively moderate Montagnards who enraged leaders were blaming for the insurrection's unexpected defeat. With the grassroots demanding immediate results, these Jacobins and their allies in the Commune, the Department and even the National Convention had to deliver the goods. If they failed, then the Mountain's position as the most prominent leaders of the revolutionary left would once again be in jeopardy. The revolutionary cohorts of Paris may have demanded continued insurrection, but they also demanded results. Changes to the insurrection's leadership, and thus the revolution's leadership, were more than possible if success remained elusive. But the problem for the Jacobins was that the growing prominence and power of the enraged was not their only risk. While the ultra-radicals to their left posed their own challenges, so too did the moderate forces to their right. Some sections of Paris were keen to mobilise armed support in favour of the besieged Girondins, and the same was likely of the Republic's departments once they heard of the latest commotion in the capital. With the deputies of the plain also hostile to the actions of the insurgents, the Jacobins had a tight balancing act to perform. How could they succeed in purging the convention without provoking civil war in the departments and greater unrest in the capital? How could they remove democratically elected deputies in such a way that didn't permanently discredit the principles of representative democracy and undermine the standing of the future constitution? How could they secure victory with the help of the ultra-radicals, but not leave a purged convention vulnerable to those same elements which sought not just an insurrection, but another revolution? Historian Morris Slavin details the conundrum facing the Jacobins of the insurrectionary movement and the ultimate plan adopted by the insurgency. Yet, the revolutionary authorities were faced with a dilemma. On the one hand, they wanted to bring sufficient pressure on the recalcitrant convention to make it surrender the guilty deputies and the Girondin ministers without resorting too openly to a violent insurrection. On the other hand, they were aware of the mounting criticism, not only from the enraged, like Jean Vallée, but from those who, like Marat, 
were demanding a purge of the convention as well. There was also the danger of conflict with the armed forces of moderate sections that still supported the Girondins. Thus, there had to be pressure put on the convention to expel the prescribed deputies, but also measures taken to protect it from the radicals on the left and from the moderates who might come to the assistance of their partisans. This pressure must not endanger the safety of the Girondins, it was agreed. How was this to be done? The answer lay in surrounding the convention with cannons and 80 to 100,000 armed men, with an inner ring of five to 6,000 Parisian guardsmen under the direct command of Ariot. The Central Revolutionary Committee decided that, now quoting the committee, the general in command will surround the convention before morning by a respectable armed force in such a way that the leaders of the faction can be arrested in light of open day in case the convention should refuse to carry out the demands of the citizens of Paris. Thus, by the evening of June the 1st, the insurrectionists had a plan. Hoping to purge the Girondins while maintaining their own power in the capital, the Jacobins of the Central Revolutionary Committee adopted a simple approach. The convention would be surrounded and compelled to submit. In attempting a limited and bloodless purge, it was hoped that both the radicalism of the enraged and the reaction of the departments could be contained. If this plan failed, in either of these regards, the consequences could be dire. On the morning of the 2nd of June, just two days after the failures of the 31st of May, insurrection was once more the order of the day. The newly installed commander of the Parisian armed forces, a man named Ario, carefully laid his trap. Strategically deploying the National Guardsmen at his disposal, he stationed those troops from sections with questionable loyalties far away from the action. Only the most dependable patriots converged on the convention, where they were joined by tens of thousands of Parisians. The 2nd of June was a Sunday, and this meant that the crowds of curious onlookers were even larger than the preceding days. Many historians put the figure at perhaps 80,000 people, a considerable sum, and if true, more than 10% of the capital's inhabitants. But this number can be misleading. The figure of 80,000 refers to Parisians, not participants, and although sympathisers could be found within the crowds, few scholars depict this event as a popular action by tens of thousands of citizens. Instead, a committed revolutionary vanguard was implementing this insurrection, and while figures are hard to find, some place the number at just a few thousand. A force drastically smaller than the 80,000 often loosely thrown around. Nonetheless, it was an impressive multitude which mustered outside the halls of power, and for those within, it was by no means clear just what proportion were hostile insurgents or just regular citizens holding the proverbial popcorn. Furthermore, 
While the number of insurrectionary guardsmen was perhaps as little as just a few thousand, this was still a non-insignificant number, especially when you factor in the cannon. Armed with more than 160 pieces of artillery, the force which assembled around the convention was not only considerable, but more than enough to intimidate and, if necessary, assault the defenceless deputies. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Yet, the relative calmness of the masses gathering outside the convention was not reflected within. Troubling news had arrived, in addition to the armed insurgents. In both the West and the South, counter-revolution was on the rise. In the Vendée, the royalist uprising was gaining ground. Although the rebels had not yet captured the strategically important town of Samur, they were now just a week away from that victory, and in the lead-up to Samur's capture, Republican forces had experienced notable setbacks. Even more disturbing, at least for the mountain, were the setbacks in the south. A municipal revolution, or a counter-revolution, depending on one's politics, had erupted in the city of Lyon. Lyon was France's second city, and amidst the unrest, the Jacobin authorities of the local commune had been overthrown by moderate forces. In a reversal of the situation occurring near simultaneously in Paris, the sections of Lyon had united to purge the Jacobins, not the Girondins and it was Girondin sympathisers who led the insurrectionary forces. Furthermore, not only had the Jacobins of Lyon been overthrown, but the convention's own deputies, who were acting as representatives on mission, were now de facto prisoners. After all, they too were Jacobins, and the new authorities of Lyon trusted them about as much as you would expect. But, as we have more than enough to focus on in Paris, We'll be exploring the fascinating and consequential events in Lyon in future episodes. What matters for us right now is that news of the Jacobins' demise 
was deeply troubling for the revolutionary cohorts of Paris. In fact, the toppling of Lyon's revolutionary authorities, combined with rumours that hundreds of true patriots had been slaughtered, dramatically increased tensions and fears within the capital. Thus, the deliberations of the convention on the 2nd of June were characterised by angst and apprehension from the start. Having heard disastrous news from the departments, it was now that the convention was informed that a deputation from the Paris Commune wished to speak. But speak they would not. While the Jacobins were dismayed by the anarchy in the provinces, the Girondins were understandably concerned with the disorders right outside. Why busy oneself with plots in the Vendée or Lyon when one should be focused on the conspiracies that were so evidently consuming the capital and literally surrounding the convention? Amidst disapproving cries from some members of the mountain, the Girondin deputy Longuenet spoke on behalf of the Girondins, or at least those who had dared to attend the ominous session. Leading figures such as Brousseau and Petion were absent from the proceedings. As a deputy, Longuenet was granted the tribune ahead of the commune's delegation. Now in a position to speak his mind, the courageous lawmaker held nothing back. But to unpack Longuenet's famous speech, the historiography surrounding it, and just a bunch of cool little facts and ironic quirks, well, that would be a significant digression. So we'll be doing all of that in the episode extra for this episode. With connections to Napoleon's downfall and to Louis XVI's ill-fated flight to Varennes, there is plenty to explore. A reminder that all of this bonus content is just some of the great perks of joining the Grey History community, and I really need your help to keep this revolution on the air. But for our purposes now, the key thing to know is this. By the time Londrinet concludes his relatively short speech, the convention is near riotous. Those Girondin deputies who were present were outraged at their broader treatment, and the treatment of Longinet in particular. Likewise, the deputies of the mountain were incensed, accusing Longinet of fostering civil war and repudiating his demands that the revolutionary authorities in Paris be both suppressed and investigated. So wild was the convention that at one point the president had to lecture his colleagues that liberty would perish if such commotion continued. At another, some Jacobin deputies allegedly attempted to physically drag Longinet away from the tribune, while others proceeded to shout death threats at the Girondin deputy as he literally clung to the tribune with all his might. So it was after these chaotic, rowdy and near-farcical scenes that the delegation of the Paris Commune was eventually allowed to speak. Having been kept waiting, this delegation let its fury known. Unlike the Commune's initial delegation on the 31st of May, there were no smiles amongst these citizens. Dispensing with the charade of merely petitioning the convention, the Commune's deputation was quick, clear, and to the point. 
issuing a set of demands while simultaneously threatening the now besieged representatives, the deputation proclaimed, People's delegates, for the past four days, the people of Paris have taken up arms. Their representatives, to whom they have never ceased to demand their indignantly violated rights, laugh at their calm and perseverance. The torch of liberty fades. The pillars of equality are shaken. The counter-revolutionaries raise their heads. Representatives, the crimes of the factious members of the convention are known to you. Immediately declare them unworthy of the nation's trust. Place them under arrest. We all answer to their departments. The people are tired of seeing you postpone their happiness. It is still in your hands. Save them, or they will save themselves. Save them, or they will save themselves. The threat was clear. If the convention continued to refuse to arrest the Girondin deputies, the insurrectionists would do what must be done. Just in case there was any doubt as to the intentions of the insurrectionary authorities, who of course had surrounded the convention with cannon, the petitioners shouted, To arms! To arms! as they left the chamber. With the deputation of the commune withdrawing, the deputies were left to deliberate on their demands. But these demands may not have had their desired effect. Historian Timothy Tackett notes that almost all of the deputies, even those in the mountain, were outraged by the threatening language of this ultimatum. Worse still, not only were many enraged by this address, but some were also incensed by the presence of the armed force which now surrounded the assembly. By what right did the Paris Commune deploy these guards? And on what grounds did they encircle the national representation? With the departure of the Commune's delegation, the usual commotion broke out. By this point, fear and anger were running wild, and it showed in the convention's debates. Jacobins called repeatedly for the arrest of their suspect colleagues. Those Girondins who had been either brave or foolish enough to attend replied with their own denunciations and objections. With the convention surrounded by an armed and increasingly hostile force, time was of the essence. Something had to break the stalemate. Something had to be done. That something was the Committee of Public Safety. In response to the petitions and allegations heard on the 31st of May, the committee had been granted three days to investigate the alleged crimes of the Girondins. Technically, these three days had not yet passed, but the insurrectionists were intent on quickening the clock. Inside the convention, like-minded deputies, aka Jacobin deputies, were keen to help and persistently demanded the immediate report of the committee. Action became unavoidable. Barrere, one of the most influential members of the plane, once again spoke on behalf of the Committee of Public Safety. Prefacing his address with the fact that the committee had been given insufficient time to investigate the matter properly, Barrere offered a compromise solution. 
Instead of arresting or even just purging the accused, Barrere proposed that the suspect deputies voluntarily suspend their powers. He stated, The committee appealed to the generosity and patriotism of the accused members. It asks of them the suspension of their power, representing to them that this alone can put an end to the divisions which afflict the Republic, can alone restore to it peace. Calling for personal sacrifices for the good of the Republic, some of the Girondins did just that. Perhaps most surprisingly, the first to do so was the Girondin deputy Isnar, who had so enraged Paris the week prior with his threats of obliteration should an insurrection menace the national representation. Far from going down in flames, historian Eric Hazen notes the dignified language of Isnar, a compliment from a modern scholar who routinely emphasises the flaws of the Girondin faction. In announcing his voluntary suspension, Isnar replied to Barrere. When we put a man and the country in the same balance, my choice is not in doubt. I always lean towards the country that I adore, that I will always adore, that I will worship to the grave. I declare it, if my blood were necessary to save the country, without an executioner, I would carry my head to the scaffold, and I myself would spin the fatal iron which should decide the course of my life. I myself would be the priest who would immolate the victim. The Committee of Public Safety presents to you the suspension of the designated members as the only measure which can avoid the great evils which we are now threatened. Certainly, I did not expect that a man who never stopped working and voting for the good of the people could ever become the object of their wrath. I am, however, they say, and it is to appease it, it is to save freedom that the Committee of Public Safety is proposing to suspend some of its representatives from their functions. Well, I will not wait for this decree to be issued, and as I do not think that anyone will say that I am doing a cowardly action, because I believe that I have shown courage up to now, as I consider that this last act to be worthy of the character of a representative of the people, I suspend myself and return to the class of simple citizens. Isnar was not alone. Two more Girondin deputies came forth, ready to voluntarily suspend their posts, willing to sacrifice their own security if it meant protecting the republics. The Girondin deputy Montenar proclaimed, "Citizens, I have the same feelings to express to you as Isnar. The same devotion is in my heart." Who is not devoured by the desire to save their country in the critical circumstances in which we find ourselves? Who, in the face of public safety, does not put aside his sorrows, his dangers, and his entire existence?
With such speeches, it appeared that the Girondins would go willingly. Surrounded by armed force, it seemed that the end had come. Until it didn't. After three voluntary suspensions, the patriotic sacrifices came to an abrupt halt. Once more, the Girondin deputy, Londrinet, took to the floor. The same deputy who had received death threats and caused such commotion during his speech prior to the Commune's delegation. Londrinet objected. These voluntary suspensions were nonsense. What was voluntary about an action conducted under the threat of violence and death? I have hitherto, I believe, shown some courage. Expect not from me either suspension or resignation. When the ancients prepared a sacrifice, they crowned the victim with flowers and they conducted it to the altar, but they did not insult it. This talk of sacrificing my powers. Sacrifice? What an abuse of words. A sacrifice must be made freely, and you are not free. The convention is under siege. Cannons are pointed at this palace. We are forbidden to stand at the windows. Muskets are loaded. I therefore declare that I cannot omit an opinion at this moment and shall remain silent. Backing his colleague, the Girondin deputy Babaru forcefully agreed. If my blood were necessary to strengthen freedom, I would ask that it be shed. If the sacrifice of my honour were necessary for the same cause, I would say, take it away from me, posterity will judge me. Finally, if the convention considers the suspension of my powers necessary, I will obey its request. But how can I myself lay down the powers with which I have been granted by the people? How can I believe that I should be suspect when I receive from my department and from 30 others and from more than a 100 popular societies testimonies of confidence, testimonies consoling the bitterness which I drink here every day? No, do not expect any resignation from me. I swore to die at my post. I will keep my oath. With the Girondins declaring themselves ready to die at their posts, the solution of the Committee of Public Safety had failed. There would be no more voluntary suspensions of the accused deputies. In fact, the suggestion had merely inflamed the situation. In response to these speeches, prominent Jacobins renewed the attack. Marat, who had been actively coordinating with the insurrectionists, objected to the Girondins stylizing themselves as sacrifices. Instead, Marat claimed that only he and other pure patriots could offer sacrifices to the nation. Furthermore, the prominent Jacobin demanded alterations to the list of proposed deputies to be purged, proclaiming some Girondins to be unworthy of prescription, while others worthy of inclusion. Another Montagnard deputy, Biu Varenne, who we heard from earlier at the Jacobin Club when he demanded the insurrection continue after the failures of the 31st of May, took 
a different line of attack. Unsatisfied by the proposal to merely suspend the accused, Beauvaren demanded a trial, claiming that the convention did not have the right to suspend its members. He argued that the only path forward was to pass decrees of accusation against the Girondin leadership and send them before the Revolutionary Tribunal. Greeted by applause from some members of the mountain, events conspired to deny the Girondins their right of reply. Instead, a fresh outrage was inflicted upon the convention, an outrage that demanded an immediate response. Surrounding the convention in an increasingly hostile manner, the insurrectionists now made their presence felt. After the convention had failed to comply with the demands of the commune's delegation, orders had been given to prevent the departure of the deputies. As the representatives debated the merits of voluntary suspensions, they became aware that multiple colleagues had been harassed. In fact, they had been threatened and even assaulted by insurrectionary National Guardsmen, who were now preventing their exit from the convention. And to be clear, this was not just the exit of good-for-nothing Girondins hoping to make good on a last-minute escape. No, this was the exit of representatives from across the political landscape. One deputy who attempted to leave was threatened with bayonets and had his clothing torn to shreds. Another member of the plane, the famous Abbé Grégoire of the National Assembly, had also been humiliated, with four men forcibly escorting him to the toilet. Not even Jacobin deputies were spared this mistreatment or indignity. Lacroix, who was both a Jacobin and a member of the Committee of Public Safety, had also been barred by soldiers and as he returned to his colleagues, he intended to make his displeasure known. Collectively outraged by the conduct of the Paris Commune and its allies in the insurrectionary movement, the convention decided to resolve the matter with haste. In short order, the deputies adopted a decree summoning Ariot, the newly installed commander of the Parisian National Guard. But Ariot was having none of it. In a line reminiscent of Pompey the Great's Stop Quoting Laws, We Carry Weapons, Ariot's response was blunt and to the point. Upon hearing the summons, Ariot stated, Tell your fucking president that I fuck him and his assembly, and if within one hour he doesn't deliver to me the 22, I'm going to blast it. Surrounded by an increasingly aggressive opponent that would not back down, the earlier warnings of the Commune's delegations haunted the deputies. Save the people, or the people will save themselves. With the likelihood of bloodshed on the rise, and with the convention apparently no longer able to deliberate freely, the representatives tried a new approach. At the suggestion of Barrere, it was proposed that the deputies decamp and face the insurrectionists head-on. Historian Timothy Tackett notes that the reason for this suggestion is disputed. Perhaps it was to compel the crowds, 
and more importantly, the insurrectionary guards, to end their encirclement of the convention. Alternatively, perhaps it was just to figure out what exactly the masses wanted, although I would say the demand for the Girondins' arrest was pretty well established by now. If you take Barrere's words at face value, it was to prove that the convention had nothing to fear from the Parisians outside, and to act as a symbolic gesture of confidence in the loyalty of the assembled citizens. Whatever the case may be, the deputies decided to pursue this course of action. A small handful of Montagnard deputies refused. Both Robespierre and Marat remained at their posts, and accounts are mixed as to whether the public galleries encouraged the deputies to venture outside, or insisted that they deliberate until the Girondins were purged. Whatever the case may be, a great majority of the assembled deputies proceeded to exit the convention and confront the crowds outside. What happened next is disputed. If we start with the parliamentary archives, the following events are all sunshine and rainbows. According to the official account, the deputies were allowed to exit and they proceeded to walk around the grounds immediately adjourning the convention. Greeted by cries of long live the Republic and long live the convention, the armed sentries and the crowds behind them were peaceful and approved of the actions of the deputies. After strolling around the grounds for some time, the deputies returned to the convention where they continued their deliberations. Now, all of this is true. But it's also true to say that these records are lying through omission. Plenty has been erased from this sanitised retelling. Other accounts offer far more insightful perspectives into the day's events. Following Barrere's proposal, the deputies decamped from their seats. The exact number of deputies participating is unknown. Historian Morris Slavin asserts that most of the convention marched as one, and Marat claimed that only 30 or so Montagnards remained with him inside the convention. Headed by their president, who was then the Jacobin deputy Arrault de Seychelles, the group of flustered representatives were allowed to exit the building. But having overcome one barrier, they soon found another. Confronted by National Guardsmen loyal to the insurrectionary Paris Commune, the deputies were prevented from exiting the perimeter which had been established around the convention. No matter where they tried, the guards turned them back. Again and again the deputies attempted to find safe passage, but in all directions no exit could be found. As the unhappy band wandered around this makeshift prison, tens of thousands of onlookers observed the captured prey. Cries of long live the mountain and to the guillotine with the Girondins hardly improved the sombre atmosphere. To historian Louis Madeleine, the deputies were reminiscent of Caesars mocked by the Praetorian Guard moments before their murder. Most famously, eyewitnesses recall a telling interaction between the convention's president and the commander of the Parisian armed forces, Ariel. 
ignoring the convention's decree that the forces surrounding it be withdrawn, Ario asked the president, Harold de Sochelle, for assurances that the 22 deputies would be arrested. With the president unwilling to provide such a commitment, Ariel's response was simple. In that case, I will not be responsible for what happens. According to a newspaper account, the commander then ordered his gunners and his infantry to prepare their arms, and some records claim that guardsmen even aimed their muskets directly at the defenceless deputies. The representatives of the nation were caught in a trap. Unable to exit the circle of iron which ensnared them, the deputies reluctantly returned inside and accepted their fate. I need your help to keep grey history going. These episodes take an extraordinary amount of time and I'm struggling to make grey history sustainable. You can do your part by joining the grey history community for the price of just half a cup of coffee. From an ad-free version of the show to hours of bonus content, there's tons of amazing perks that come with sponsoring the show. The new community Discord is providing plenty of opportunities for members to ask me follow-up questions about events and individuals, and for those on the true revolutionary tier, they already have early access to episode 62, The Federalist Revolts. So please, these episodes take an extraordinary amount of effort, and I need a small contribution from you to keep bringing you the show you've come to love. I can't do it without your support. It takes just a couple of minutes and you can cancel your support at any time if you stop listening to the show. So please click the link in the show notes or on the website and do your part to produce history that isn't black and white. Help keep grey history on the air today. With even some Jacobins fearful of the forces outside, the following purge was swift. Returning to seats which had now been partially occupied by some of the insurrectionists, the deputies were humiliated. Historian Simon Sharma paints a scene in which a damp silence of guilt, fear and embarrassment settled on the convention. This silence was broken by a Jacobin, one of the most iconic members of the Committee of Public Safety. Elected to the committee days prior, the deputy, George Couton, seized the initiative with a cruelly ironic speech. Claiming that the people had clearly shown that the convention deliberated freely, he called for the arrest of the accused. Citizens, all members of the convention must now be reassured of their freedom. You have marched towards the people. Everywhere you have found them good, generous, and incapable of attacking the safety of their representatives, but indignant against the conspirators who seek to enslave them. Now, therefore, that you recognize that you are free in your deliberations, I request, not as yet, a decree of indictment against the 22 members denounced, but given that opinion is strongly pronounced against them, I propose that they be placed under arrest 
at their homes. With cannons pointing at the national government and seemingly ready to fire, the convention consented. For a brief moment, haggling occurred on the exact list of prescribed deputies. Marat demanded alterations. So too did other Jacobins, who wanted to remove from the list the two members of the Commission of Twelve who had voted against the arrest of Herbert, Valet and Dobson. It was in this process that the deputy Isnar had his name struck from the list, apparently because of his earlier offer to voluntarily suspend his powers. This ties into the episode extra for the last episode, in which we discussed Isnar's speech, but I maintain my suspicions as to just how impactful this speech really was, given his removal from the list of the deputies to be detained. After some short back and forth, the convention finally made its will known. Or perhaps more accurately, made the will of the insurrectionists of Paris known, cloaked as a free act of the national representation. Placing the Girondins under house arrest, the insurrectionist movement had finally succeeded. The Girondins were purged. Unsurprisingly, this purge is not without controversy. Even at the time, the disputes were immediate. Historians from across the ideological spectrum note that it's not even clear how many deputies participated in the vote to detain the Girondins, and a significant number abstained from the proceedings. Furthermore, despite the rowdiness of the insurrectionists sitting alongside the deputies, and the commotion in the public galleries, protests against these arrests were still recorded. A number of deputies came forth, objecting to the expulsion, and demanded their opposition be recorded. Eventually, some 75 deputies would sign a protest, some 10% of the convention. Unfortunately for these dissenters, this opposition would make them targets in the terror to come. Naturally, the controversies surrounding the events of 31 May through to 2 June are endless amongst historians. So too are the interpretations. For some, these events were a necessity. We heard in episode 59, no shortage of historians describe the Girondins as inept, misguided and unfit to lead the chaos which they had done so much to create. For these scholars, the insurrection of mid-1793 is generally considered essential for the revolution to survive. Without it, paralysis would continue to grip the convention and the republic would have crumbled. Even some Girondin sympathisers, such as Lamartine, agree that the uprising saved the nation, despite their personal support for the condemned. The common vibe amongst scholars sympathetic to the insurrection is encapsulated perfectly by historian Jean Jaurès. In a brief line, Jaurès states plainly, The Gironde had become a mortal danger to revolutionary France. It had to cease to exist. 
Yet even amongst these historians, those broadly supportive of the events of mid-1793, there is a considerable amount of difference that can be found. Some emphasise the fact that this insurrection was a coup, an event completely unlike the spontaneous storming of the Bastille. Others, however, are keen to emphasise the popular nature of the insurrection, a characterisation that, understandably, is hotly disputed. Playing down the coup-like aspects of the insurrection, it's described by some as a coup of the people and depicted as a regulated act of popular sovereignty. Historian George Lefebvre, for example, avoids the word coup altogether, instead deploying the euphemism that it was the best organised day of the revolution. Historian Eric Hazen takes a different approach, acknowledging the features of a coup, but instead stressing the necessity of the moment when defending these events. So ended the third great moment in the ascending phase of the revolution, the third revolution in the revolution. The elimination of the Girondins was necessary. Even Michelet, whose sympathies were with them, recognised this. Now quoting Michelet, The Girondin policy in the early months of 1793 was impotent and blind. It would have spelled the loss of France. Back to Hazen. But the events of 31 May to 2 June were different from the two previous revolutions, those of 14 July 1789 and 10 August 1792. The people had attacked the Bastille and the Tuileries in a spontaneous impulse, whereas this time the popular movement was encased in a parliamentary revolution with some of the features of a coup d'etat. And indeed, The fall of the Girondins was not greeted by displays of popular joy, as the previous revolutions had been. But, while some historians sympathetic to the insurrection place differing emphasis on the coup-like aspects of these events, those scholars who are hostile to the insurgency put those same characteristics front and centre. Not only do they lament at the unjust loss of the Girondin faction, which historian Francois Mignet describes as a party of great talents and courage, but they also lament at the loss of something far greater. In surrounding the convention with an armed force and imposing its will upon the national government, the insurrectionary authorities had written the playbook for future turning points. The coup of 18 Fructidor of 1797 and the coup of 18 Brumaire in 1799 would both mirror the tactics of mid-1793. In all of these occasions, soldiers encircled the national government, pressed their will upon it, and threatened those inclined to dissent with everything from arrest to an unexpected meeting with St. Peter. Thus, While some historians consider this moral insurrection as instrumental in establishing a more virtuous republic, it's stressed by others that these exact same methods were undoubtedly used to crush democratic ideals just a few years later. 
even amongst some who don't lament the downfall of the Girondins. It's conceded that it wasn't just them who were defeated, but representative democracy as well. Of course, the viewing of the events of 31 May through to 2 June through the prism of factional conflict is just one interpretation of many. To attempt to cover them all would be a Herculean task, but before we wrap up, this is the French Revolution, and that means someone has to say two short words. Class conflict. For some historians, the real story here is not a battle of factions, but rather a battle of classes. The bourgeois versus the sans-culottes. The patricians versus the plebs. The elites versus the masses. Countless times in this revolution, we have seen scholars view events through a class lens, particularly those belonging to the Marxist school of historiography. Interestingly, however, this time, one can find substantial divisions amongst these historians. Now, given the fact that Marxist interpretations of the revolution define so much of our understanding, it is of course the classical interpretation, these disputes are both fascinating and illustrative. The extent to which these events of mid-1793 can be considered class conflict is a matter of dispute, even amongst Marxist historians. Historian Albert Marti, one of the great pioneers of the classical interpretation of the French Revolution, routinely emphasizes class conflict, and here he does so again. For him, what occurred in June 1793 was not just a political revolution, but a social one as well. Stressing the centrality of class dynamics, Matisse sees the overthrow of the bourgeoisie and their cherished parliamentary system as one of the key outcomes of these events. Matisse writes, June 2 was therefore more than a political revolution. The sans-culottes overthrew not only a party, but to a certain extent, a class of society. After the minority consisting of the nobility, which perished with the throne, it was the turn of the upper middle classes. The revolution of August 10 had already been characterised by an obvious mistrust of parliamentarianism. But the revolution of August 10 had spared the assembly. This time, taught by experience, the sans went a step further. They did not hesitate to mutilate the national representative body, though in this they were following the example set to them by their opponents when they sent Marat before the Revolutionary Tribunal. The class policy, inaugurated in their turn by those responsible for June 2, could be adapted only with difficulty to the existing legal framework. A blow had to be struck at the fiction of parliamentarianism. The time for a dictatorship was at hand. So, historian Albert Matti sees not just a political revolution, but a social one as well. The representatives of the upper middle classes had been purged, replaced by those willing to govern on behalf of the lower classes, and to do so 
by whatever means necessary. But even amongst Marxist historians, this is a controversial stance. Historian George Lefebvre notes that it was the mountain which was victorious, not the enraged, and that upon consolidating their power, the Jacobins left the Sankulots empty-handed. Far from overthrowing a class of society and implementing sweeping social reforms, the mountain sidelined much of the leadership and agenda of the ultra-radicals. In fact, not only were the demands of the enraged ignored, but the two groups would soon find themselves consumed in their own factional feud. Far from seeing a social revolution in the events of mid-1793, Lefebvre sees a betrayal and nothing more. Thus, the interpretations of the events of May and June 1793 are as numerous as the prescribed. While some lament the loss of great statesmen through an unrepresentative coup d'etat, others celebrate the supposed triumph of popular sovereignty and the saving of the nation. Some welcome a necessity, others lament a tragedy, and all walk away with their own opinions on these controversial events. Even within the various schools of historiography, considerable divisions can be found, despite these same scholars generally reaching pretty similar conclusions. It is, to be frank, grey history, and as the revolution continues to radicalise, as the blood continues to flow, so will these differences and perspectives multiply with time. It is perhaps fitting to end this episode with a focus on the Girondins themselves. It is, after all, their actions and inactions that defines so much of the revolution. To save us all from suffering more of my terrible French, I won't read out the names of all of the nearly three dozen deputies and ministers which were to be detained, but it includes the usual suspects. Brissot, the most prominent, Vernieux, the wordsmith, Petion, the former mayor of Paris, Louvet and the other leading antagonists of Robespierre and the Triumvirate. While we know many of these figures and how they shaped so much of the revolution's character and progress, even those less familiar to us played considerable parts. Barbarou, for example, had lobbied Marseille to send federés to the capital, and it was those volunteers which played such a critical part in overthrowing the monarchy on the 10th of August. Raboul Saint-Étienne, who features prominently in David's famous sketch of the tennis court oath, had a leading role in the emancipation of Protestants in the months after the First Assembly of Notables. Bouzeau was one of the most outspoken champions for nationalising church lands during the original National Assembly. Longinet championed the prevention of deputies becoming ministers. Lebrun, the foreign minister, had more recently shaped much of the revolution's policies in Belgium and the Low Countries and the war with England. Whether big or small, many of the prescribed had made important contributions. And of course, that's not mentioning the faction's wider work, vigorously implementing religious reforms, delegitimizing the king's vetoes, energetically pursuing emigres, refractory clergy, 
and the infamous Austrian committee, supporting de Maurier, and of course, unleashing the Revolutionary War. Although a socialist historian, with many ideological differences with the Girondins, Louis Blanc writes a favourable obituary and notes their positive impact on the revolutionary project, which now consumed them. Thus fell the party of the Gironde, so great in enthusiasm, in eloquence, and in courage, attracted towards the enlightened side of new things, whose charm is associated in their minds with the most beautiful recollections of antiquity, and seizing power forcefully, they used it to crush the nobles, prescribe the priests, undermine the throne, make popular the bonnet rouge, encourage sanculantism, and defy all of Europe. In fact, not only did the Girondins defy all of Europe, but they would now defy Paris as well. Although placed under house arrest, this was not the end. Determined to continue the struggle for the revolution they believed in, in the following days, many Girondins either evaded or escaped confinement. Fleeing to their strongholds in the departments, the flag of rebellion was raised. The Federalist revolts had begun. Thank you for listening to episode 61, The Purge of the Girondins, part 3. In the next several episodes, we'll explore the civil wars that consume the French Republic and force it to adopt the reign of terror. The episode extra for this episode explores the famous speech of the deputy Longinet, and with all its ironic twists and unexpected ties to other major events, it's definitely worth a listen. Before you go, I'd like to ask you a question. Did you enjoy this episode? Did you find it entertaining? Did you find it educational? Well, if you did, that's fantastic and I'd like to keep bringing you episodes like this in the future. But to do so, I desperately need your support. These episodes take upwards of 50 hours to produce, and I'm struggling to make grey history sustainable. So please follow the links in the show notes or on the website and join the community of amazing people who are keeping grey history on the air. Those members on the True Revolutionary tier already have early access to episode 62, The Federalist Revolts. Finally, if you could find just one opportunity between now and the next episode to share the podcast, that would be fantastic. A final thank you to all the members of the Grey History community, and a special call out again to the extraordinarily generous Heroes of the Revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, Auger, Kevin, Noel, and Scott. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and have a great day. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
I interrupt this regular programming to bring you some alarming news. There's been some counter-revolutionary activity. I suppose it's a mark of the show's growing popularity, but unfortunately some reactionary fun sponges have recently left Grey History's first one and two star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Usually, I would ignore such unenlightened behaviour and consider it an inevitable achievement of all noteworthy podcasts. But, besides complaining about my shitty jokes and apparently lack of detail, yes, you heard right, these reviews are quite literally impacting the discoverability of the show for new listeners. That, of course, is jeopardising this experiment in full-time production, which I think we can all agree we don't want to jeopardise. So, if you listen to Apple Podcasts in particular, and you haven't already done so, if you could please leave a written review, that would be absolutely amazing. Just go to Grey History in the app and scroll down to the review section and help me expunge this counter-revolutionary plot. Thank you again for all your help, and now back to the show.